0: Today, we're in conversation with Golam Balam, Chief Economist at the Standard Bank Group, who hosted a virtual discussion on the impact of COVID-19 on South Africa on the 8th of April 2020. Let's listen to his thoughts. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to this podcast. It is an attempt to give you some impression of the possible impact of COVID-19 on South Africa's economic and political landscape over the ensuing quarters. It is assembled in three parts. At the outset, I will attempt to give you an impression of COVID-19 status around the globe, followed by what we think that will mean for prospective global GDP, and then lastly, South Africa will fit into this mosaic. At the outset then it would seem to be that we have a little bit more than 1.4 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 around the world and the number of recorded deaths is in the vicinity of 82,000. That would seem to be delivering a fatality rate of slightly under six percent. Of course it is very likely that the fatality rate will be noticeably lower than near 6%, given that it is equally likely that the total number of confirmed cases around the world may be much, much higher than the reported 1.4 million. That notwithstanding, we find comfort on this day in the sense that the number of daily infections in some of the key markets appears to have crested, appears to be, in fact, receding. So if we look, for example, at Spain and Italy in the Western European geography, the recent days data does seem to suggest that the worst is past and the increase in the daily rate of infections is beginning to subside. It is similarly the case with France and Germany. Of some concern, though, is that the cresting seems to be a little bit more stuttering in the United Kingdom. And of course, it is the same in the United States. So just in summary, if one looks at Western markets and some of those nations that have been most affected, it does appear that the hotspots in Europe seem to be abating in terms of the spread of the virus, although the United Kingdom, as I've suggested, appears to be lagging. And the United States too, and this is perhaps a little unsurprising given that the United States was perhaps a little bit more stuttering, a little bit more ambivalent in terms of its early approach to containing the spread of the disease as evidenced by the very halting approach to lockdowns across the nation. That notwithstanding, have focused on the daily new infections simply because markets and most observers seem to find this particular metric as providing most comfort in signaling perhaps that we are near a stage where the virus seems to be seemingly contained in most markets. If we look, for example, also at SARS episode in 2003. And of course, it's a severe acute respiratory syndrome. And while certainly the parallels between COVID-19 and SARS are sketchy, what we do note is that sentiment around the world in terms of the prospect of recovery and resumption did come to pass once the number of daily infections Began to subside, which as I've suggested is the case seemingly unfolding now with respect to COVID-19. Now turning to the impact on GDP at the outset of this year, many would have suggested that the global economy will very likely grow by say 2.5% in 2020 and even prospectively accelerating in 2021. Now, of course, that has subject to major revision. So, compared to, say, 2.5% earlier suggestions of growth in 2020, it is quite likely that the global economy will instead contract by 2%. Notably, the switch in terms of developed markets, prospects, is in Incredibly acute. At the outset of this year in January, we would have anticipated developed market growth of approximately 1%. It is quite conceivable now instead that developed markets will contract by at least 3.5%. Emerging markets were anticipated to grow by 4.2% this year. Instead, we think it will just struggle to eck out growth of around 1% in 2020. Still positive, but a material degradation in its growth forecast. It's perhaps just worth mentioning, for instance, that whereas initially it was anticipated that China would grow by roughly 6% this year, China is instead likely to see its growth rate halve to approximately 3% at best now some will say that three percent ordinarily in the global landscape is something to be cheered and that may be true in some respects however for the world's second largest economy with a GDP in the vicinity of $16 trillion, a change in growth rate by approximately 3% is pretty meaningful at the margins. And it is especially relevant if one considers, for instance, that China is the world's marginal consumer of commodities, the marginal price set of commodities. So this loss of momentum from around 6% to 3% GDP growth this year is meaningful in terms of injecting some degree of China-led shock into the global economy. Now, in response to this change in growth prospects, we've seen in recent weeks, enormous volatility in financial markets. During much of March, there was heightened risk aversion. And in fact, investors simply shed assets, especially in emerging markets. And indicatively, it's unsurprising, that emerging market currencies also depreciated precipitously. The RAND to date has declined, depreciated by roughly 25%. And in fact, in recent days, the RAND was one of the world's weakest currencies year to date, surpassing even the depreciation of the Mexican peso and even the Brazilian real. Of course, and I'll get to this in a moment, The South African market has been punished disproportionately, not only because it is an emerging market, but South Africa is also judged to be a nation with a very dominant commodities base. So it's a commodities country, a commodities currency. And thirdly, idiosyncratic elements such as the likelihood of the sovereign credit downgrades which did come to pass weighed on South African fundamentals and on the currency during March. Now as we enter April increasingly we're beginning to receive global data giving us some sense of exactly what a sudden stop looks like. And the vista is hardly pretty. And just drawing on one particular data piece, if we look at the United States, which of course has an incredibly flexible labor market, and by that we mean American firms can very easily hire and fire. So that fluidity, that flexibility is likely to suggest that in an environment of American shutdown, American sudden stop, we will see the impact of this on the labor market. And as I've suggested, just drawing on one particular metric, if we look at American initial jobless claims, this data set reports weekly, and it gives an impression of individuals joining the unemployment line seeking benefits every single week. In the 1980s, the recessionary period then, we saw a peak Unemployment claim per week of approximately 700,000. So just repeating that in any particular week at its worst, 700,000 people were joining the ranks of the unemployed and seeking public sector benefits. During the global financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, then the United States saw a peak in weekly unemployment claims of approximately 665,000. So reflecting through the rearview mirror, it does appear that typically during the United States most stressed times, the unemployment line per week never grows by more than still a sizable 700,000 persons. However, in recent weeks, we've seen the impact of COVID-19 on the United States, and it has not only been alarming but the data has surpassed any historical precedent. So for instance, in the week to the 21st of March, 3.3 million Americans filed unemployment claims. In the following week, that's the week to the 28th of March, that 3.3 million figure from the previous week in fact doubled to 6.6 million individuals, put slightly differently. In the two weeks to the end of 28th March, about 10 million Americans joined the ranks of the unemployed seeking benefits. And this far, far surpasses anything that America had seen before. Over the coming weeks and months, we will get similar indications of labor market data, real economy data, production data that gives us a sense of what a sudden stop looks like, of what in a hundred year economic smash resembles. And quite clearly, it will be both socially as well as economically disturbing. With that background, and now turning to the finals installment, what do we think about South Africa within this mosaic? At the outset of this year, we anticipated that the South African economy would grow by 0.8%. We have now revised that outlook to suggest that in the unfolding year, the South African economy is likely to contract by 5% and it may even be slightly worse than that. So that is a material revision quite clearly and of course largely related to COVID-19. However, while the annual subtraction of 5% in its own right is alarming, what is notable and should be emphasized is that we anticipate that the economic damage will be largely concentrated around the second quarter. In other words, we anticipate that from the first quarter to the second quarter, the South African economy may decline by up to 30% in terms of output. And just to give you some indication, during the global financial crisis in the late 2000s, the worst quarterly growth rate was approximately 6%. In other words, at the prospective decline of 30%, this would quite clearly be many-fold more uh, damage to the South African economy on a quarterly basis. But there's a further difference relative to, for example, the global financial crisis. For instance, during that period, the South African economy contracted for three quarters. During the unfolding episode, the current episode, we would suggest that even though the quarter on quarterly plunge between quarter one and quarter two of this year may be markedly more severe than the global financial crisis episode, South Africa could be fortunate in the respect that this may only be a one quarter subtraction the idea that the South African economy could begin to resume economic prowess during quarter three is quite possible, quite plausible, and especially if South Africans are able to, as we've learned, flatten the curve. With regard to financial markets, and as I've indicated a moment ago, the RAND depreciated by approximately 25% in the year to date. What's especially notable is that the South African rand, as well as bonds, have depreciated much more than similarly rated peers so whether it is the rand against emerging market currencies of similar fundamentals or the rand even against countries that have got very lumpy commodity component to their gdp it is consistent that the RAND's depreciation has been disproportionate has been larger and it is the same for yields in the bond market so why is this and i've already hinted it at the um, earlier on quite simply south africa tends to be judged an emerging market, a commodity country, a commodity currency, and what weighed on South Africa as well was the status of South Africa within the credit rating agencies. We now know that Moody's and Fitch have downgraded South Africa um, further from their earlier settings and Moody's was particularly relevant because Moody's still accorded South Africa an investment grade rating prior to its recent downgrade. And of course, Moody's was the only rating agency that still afforded South Africa a, an investment grade rating. Now that, of course, has all faded and one can argue that, um, the worst of South Africa's growth risks are already baked into financial markets and quite possibly overall asset prices. From the contraction of roughly 5% this year, we envisage South Africa recovering in the second half of 2020, with the prospect that South Africa could grow by approximately 4% in 2021. Now, just to bear in mind, a contraction of 5% this year, and then with the prospect of 4% growth in 2021 would still render South Africa at about the same size as it was in 2019. In other words, over 2020 and 2021, on average, it would be fair to suggest that the overall South African economy would have remained more or less flat in terms of output in terms of overall income generation. But still, we believe the second half of 2020 will be more favorable. This, of course, critically will hinge on the extent of the lockdown and the successes South Africa is able to harness from the early lockdown approach that President Ramaphosa has subscribed to. Just on that particular endeavor. I think it's incredibly admirable that after South Africa's first recorded case of COVID nineteen, which as you know occurred on the fifth of March, it was almost precisely four weeks later, on the twenty sixth of March, that we shut down um in terms of uh economic output and beginning to practice aggressive social distancing. And I mention this simply because uh, around the world, it is perhaps only China, even if it was somewhat belatedly, that uh, embraced an incredibly vigorous shutdown, perhaps also along with a few other Asian nations, but it was far more halting in Western Europe and certainly in the United States. So in this respect, whereas South Africa seems to, at this stage, have recorded Um, approximately 1,750 cases of COVID-19. And of course, that figure is likely to underrepresent the reality. It is also encouraging, and I say this with empathy, that to date, South Africa has recorded only 13 deaths as a function of COVID-19, perhaps signaling also that the early stage lockdown, has begun to yield some element of benefits. So bringing this entire podcast to a close, perhaps just to conclude with a few financial market statements, the rand has been noticeably volatile and weak in recent days, especially. However, it is our view that the currency could conceivably appreciate to near 16 rand to the US dollar by the year end. And similarly, with a matching appreciation in terms of the RAND's value against sterling and the euro. With respect to inflation, we think inflation will remain benign during the course of this year. Quite clearly, there's no demand pressures. However, the pressure from the RAND, even though it has been weak, is likely to be very mute in terms of nudging imported inflation the translation from the weak rand to final inflation tends to be very low in South Africa, especially in recent years. And then also the favorable levels of inflation in the higher ends of the supply chain with respect to food does suggest that South Africa is unlikely to experience any food shortages Um, particularly at the manufacturing, at the production, at the farm level. And so that is not going to be a source of inflation pressure. And against that background, it is also quite conceivable that the South African Reserve Bank could lower interest rates further. We know well that the Reserve Bank lowered interest rate by a quarter percentage point in January, and that was largely because of general growth concerns and a favorable inflation prognosis. Then in March, the Reserve Bank lowered interest rates by one percentage point, largely as a function of the unfolding COVID-19 risks. It is conceivable that the reserve bank could lower rates by another percentage point, at least in terms of incremental cuts during the course of this year. And it is further conceivable that the repo rate could fall from a prevailing 5.25% to even 4%. We note, for example, during the GFC of 2008 and 9, albeit over several years, the Reserve Bank lowered interest rates or at least its benchmark repo rate from 12% to 5%, a very substantial 7 percentage point interest rate reduction during that cycle, um, so as to underwrite, put some support um, underneath the economy. And we think the Reserve Bank It will be similarly responsive, even clearly not of the same magnitude as during the GFC. But the Reserve Bank will draw on its playbook from 2008 and 9 and provide financial stability as well as interest rate relief um, as a stabilizing measure over the immediate near term, but also low interest rates as part of the growth recovery process in due course. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to this podcast. We do hope that it has provided some insight on how Standard Bank assesses South Africa's prospects over the near term. Thank you for listening. Please note that the material presented is non-independent research. This is a marketing communication and has not been prepared in accordance with the full legal requirements designed to promote independence of research and is not subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. Views expressed are those of the speaker and do not represent those of Standard Bank and its affiliates. You have been listening to In Conversation with Standard Bank Corporate and Investment Banking.